COVID-19 can be brutal. The Times writer Roger Boys caught the virus in early March, just as it was starting to make its presence felt in London. Within days, he was in ICU, sedated, intubated, and on a ventilator to help him breathe. While I was there, I was either in an induced coma or close to one. And so these days for me are missing days, just not part of my memory at all. Roger survived, but it was a close shave. Since leaving hospital, he's been trying to reconstruct those lost days in ICU, and every day brings new clues. I realised underneath the beard there were these quite deep scar tissue and that the beard was actually disguising it, which ran from the bottom of my ear to just underneath my mouth. In the UK, more than 10,000 people have needed critical care to deal with the virus, including the Prime Minister. So what's it like to be in ICU with COVID-19? You're listening to Stories of Our Times from The Times and The Sunday Times. I'm Manveen Rana. Today, surviving coronavirus, scars and all. I think they'd put an oxygen mask already on my face and I was rattling through these these long, spooky tunnels, but still quite conscious. And as I progressed through the sort of bowels of this hospital, I could see people staring at me, staring through closed doors, but with windows. Obviously, they were unmasked and just looking at me as if I was a freak. And it was the beginning of this freak show. I was, I could see a specimen. (laughs) And it was a very strange experience, a very strange ghostly experience. Roger Boys is the diplomatic editor and foreign policy columnist for The Times. He recently wrote about his experience of coronavirus and how, on March the 7th, it landed him in ICU. I become ill and reported to Guy's urgent care centre and they'd ambulanced me to St Thomas and I was pushed through A&E and taken for an examination. They could see there was something seriously wrong with my lungs. I was diagnosed positive with COVID. And so had to be taken from that first investigative ward to a secure area, not immediately to ICU, but to a secure area. And to do that, they had to take me through a long tunnel that stretches between the different parts of St. Thomas, which is a very large hospital in London. I was on one of these trolleys. Virtually from that moment, I lost any real sense of what I was doing. That's to say I deteriorated very fast after that moment. This is why it's a very vivid image for me, because it marked my farewell to a different kind of life in a way. It was the frontier post between pre-COVID-19 and actually acknowledging that the disease existed and being treated. Thousands of people in Britain have crossed that frontier and been admitted to intensive care with coronavirus, and more are being admitted every day. It's not a decision that's taken lightly. 
most patients, it's worth saying, do not become unwell enough to require intensive care. Dr Sonia Hudson is an intensive care consultant. She didn't treat Roger, but she has helped many patients like him with the virus. But for the few percentage that do, it is a journey that is fraught with fear, anxiety, uncertainty about the future, and no real understanding, I think, of what they're going through, which I think probably leaves a trail of chaos afterwards that they need to navigate their way through. Can you remember what you were thinking at the time? I don't think I was really fully aware of what it meant, and I don't think there were many people in Britain who were at that stage. It was about this time people were saying, wash your hands and sing happy birthday twice. It was treated almost like a you know, a child's game, a kind of Blue Peter event. And I took it in that kind of spirit too. I thought, well, you know, so it's the flu and I've got a bad chest infection. It'll be okay. And actually, there wasn't really time for fear. I think once you've reached a certain stage of physical weakness and you've handed over responsibility for your body to somebody else, actually, you're not particularly scared. You're scared when they start to fiddle around with you, when they start to push tubes into you and then it's unpleasant uncomfortable alien to your own body and that's when you start to feel scared take me back to the start when did you first feel ill i felt ill in a kind of classic office worker way you know that's to say you have a bit of a cough maybe if you're a wimp you get a lozenge or something like that um <laughs> and, but the first time i really became aware of it was because I'm researching a book, and I was in the London Library, where, of course, everyone is silent, not least the people who are sleeping on the padded leather seats in the reading room there. And I started to cough. When other people notice your cough, then you start to notice your cough. And I thought, yeah, okay, this is not good. How long was it from feeling self-conscious in, in the London Library about your cough to being rushed to hospital? There was an intermediary process where I went to the GP. In those days, you could actually physically visit a GP. He said, "You've oh, yes, uh, you've got a chest infection. You better isolate yourself for seven days. So I did what I was told, and I went back home and got worse. And then a friend came to visit, noticed that my lips were rather blue, and that's when never a good time. Well, that's when, that's when the hospital came into into play because that's also an early signal that your body is not properly oxygenating. And what happened when you were rushed to hospital? Well, it wasn't immediately apparent that I was going to intensive care. I was taken to another ward, and then I think things got worse. I struggled to breathe, and my medical notes—I didn't know any of this at the time—but my medical notes show that I have. My lungs had 80% saturation when they should be 95%. So I was already quite close to death, really. When you reach that kind of level, then the, the chances of other things happening, organ failure, heart attack, and so on, they all multiply. I was then rushed to the intensive care unit. And for me, that's when it became an emergency. First of all, they sedate you, so you don't have a conscious awareness that it's happening. You just have this 
terrific feeling of something happening to you that you don't want to happen to you. And I, I think, again, judging from my notes, because it's, it's very difficult to actually reconstruct what it felt like there, but from my medical notes, it's clear that my body rejected tubes for quite a long time. So they had to then put me under quite deep sedation. And then they put the, all the things in. So in order to take over someone's breathing, we need to put them on a ventilator, a breathing machine. And in order to attach them to that, we need to pass a tube down the windpipe. If I tried to do that to anyone when they were awake, they'd, they'd probably hit me and certainly swear at me. So in order to successfully do that, we need to anaesthetize people. And that anaesthetic has to continue pretty much for the duration of time that people are on the ventilator. So we're finding with COVID that that can run into weeks and I suspect will run even into months. While I was there, I was either in an induced coma or close to one. And so these days for me are missing days. At least 10, 12 days are just not part of my memory at all. Were you aware whilst you were in hospital that your, your life was in danger? Well, only by analogy. So there was a, quite a cheery male nurse who, who was looking after us for a while. And we were all men. And he would say to the man in the bed next to me, well, it's good to see you're eating. I thought you'd had it. Oh, wow. Uh, yeah. And, and to another one, oh, you know, well done. You know, you're sitting up properly. Um, but you know what will happen if you don't sit up properly. You won't get oxygen in your lungs and that'll be it. And it, so it's kind of, you know, uh, rough. Brutal. <laughs> but they, they didn't say that to me, but I could hear that, hear what they were saying. And I sort of immediately sat up properly and started to eat this calorie rich uh, hospital food. There was, there was quite a lot of brisk, no nonsense stuff, but nobody came up to me and said, you know, this is it. But they did say it to my relatives. So they would say, well, this is a crucial moment. We've thrown everything we can at him, basically. And, and now we have to wait for the immune system to kick in. And if it doesn't, well, you know, it doesn't kind of thing. And then suddenly your children get to understand that, that you are on the brink of, brink of death, really, I suppose. What does it sound like? What are you hearing if you're on an ICU ward day and night? Lots of alarms, lots of bells and sounds, beeping sounds from monitors, from ventilators, from kidney machines. You're probably struggling to hear the staff because although they may come up and may be talking to you, you're in a half comatose state. But then even when you start to waken, the staff are wearing full PPE and it's hard enough for us to hear each other. So I can only imagine that the patients are not necessarily hearing what we're saying to them or only catching snippets, which must be very, very difficult to interpret. A few days into his hospital stay, Roger appeared to be stabilising. But on March the 12th, his son got a call saying things had taken a turn for the worse. My lungs had basically collapsed again and I'd had what they call a respiratory peri-arrest. There's a danger with that. The oxygen doesn't reach the brain, you know, because the lungs can't pump it into the brain. 
uh, and therefore you might have brain damage. So your children are not just confronted with the possibility of, you know, having to come to London to organize my funeral, but also the possibility that I might be returning in need of, you know, constant care. I don't know which, which would have been worse for them, to be honest. But all this is withheld from you. And that chafed a bit with me because, well, because I'm a journalist. Yeah, it's, it's, it's really difficult being a journalist and a patient um, yeah. because it, it, it's better to be something else. You want answers? Yeah, yeah, because, well, because you question things and you, you resent the hierarchies. What point did you realise just how severe your condition was? When you get discharged, you get a whole account of what had happened to you and so on. And all of it's, you know, it a complete revelation to me because nobody had actually sat down and said, well, we had you on a ventilator for 10 days or anything like this. It was only later that it really became clear to me what had happened to me and to my body. In recent years, many, but not all, intensive care units have introduced patient diaries. The idea is to provide a record of the time when patients won't have known what they were experiencing, in the hope that it helps them to process it. After I'd left hospital, that's when you get given this book. It's called Critical Care Patient Diary. When you're going to an ICU, you're basically the subject of attention from maybe 12 highly trained medical professionals, anaesthetists, you know, all sorts of people that are all around your bed. But in the end, these people go away. They're there to save your life. If they've saved your life, then, you know, good. But basically, there's a stage where you're kind of left alone to sort out things for yourself. And in this particular moment, a diary like this is essential. It's written late at night, usually, by the staff nurse on the intensive care unit who must be tired, yeah, after a 15-hour shift or whatever she's been doing. Yeah. And she writes essentially letters to you on the assumption that you're going to live, explaining what has happened to you. It's a kind of nineteenth, <laughs> almost a 19th century or early 20th century kind of thing to do, just to kind of say, you know, this is what happened to you today, but in really nice, polite way like it's your sister writing to you or something like this how much does it mean to you now being able to look over those notes of what was a a, a fuzzy period you know period you can't really recall well i can read you read you a couple or, or at least bits of them so this is the night shift of the 11th of march so i'd obviously been switched to this particular intensive care unit on the previous morning i suppose on the 10th it says, Dear Roger, unfortunately you came to us at Handover tonight after being in the hospital for a few days. You've got a nasty chest infection and you are now being supported on one of our ventilators. You're currently being kept asleep with sedation so your lungs can rest for a while. Apart from keeping you stable and giving you lots of medication, I've given you a little wash, cooled you down, brushed your teeth, no memory of that, and documented and kept your property safe. I hope you recover quickly, and I will keep you up to date with your progress. Signed, Senior Staff Nurse Catherine Whitley. And then the next day, it looks a bit better. 
there's a lot of euphemisms in this, yeah. <laughs> this kind of, um, you know, we gave you a lot of medication and stuff like this. I, I was actually being pumped full of stuff. Dear Roger, tonight has been a much more settled night for you. You are on a minimal amount of medication to keep your blood pressure up. We have you on very little sedation, and you have squeezed my hand to assure me you understand me, which I'm sure you won't remember because you're still very sleepy. Hopefully today we may be able to take you a little further, but every time I try, you're finding it difficult to tolerate the breathing tube, which at present is very important. And so and now already she's signing herself Catherine. So we're already good friends. Good friends now. <laughs> good. Well, we're sort of diary friends. I, I've never actually met her. I haven't been able to, to contact her. I'm not quite sure how to do it or whether it's even appropriate. But I'm trying to penetrate through the hospital sense of discretion about this and see whether I can, yeah. I can get to her. What was it like for you opening that diary for the first time and reading those those letters? Well, it was extraordinary, really, because it filled a gap in knowledge. Um, you know, you get used to reading between the lines and you just know that I was in a really bad state, even though she uses phrases like, you're currently being kept asleep with sedation, so your lungs can rest for a while. You, you know already that you were in a, a really bad condition. But also it gives the, the the most touching thing is this squeezing of the hand. And maybe that's a a normal medical practice or maybe she's just trying to test that I was still alive or or whatever. I don't know. But either way, that kind of thing is very is very touching and important. The whole of my stay was really full of these little gestures. For example, later in the rehab ward where really the dying really should have stopped. Yes. Someone did die uh, opposite me. And there came a time when he had to be taken away to the morgue and the ward doctor, very emotionally clever Irish doctor, drew the curtains around my bed so that I wouldn't see what was going to happen next. Introduced me to the, the hospital in-house entertainment channel, <laughs> which I hadn't before and said uh, do you like the simpsons and of course I, I i don't know anything about the simpsons well i mean i know i know about the simpsons but i never watched them and she put on this is my favorite episode she said, so there was an episode about a retirement home uh, which was actually very funny and she said put the, put the headphones on and i put the headphones on and she did that for a reason which is that two men i could hear their voices come in to take the body away and if I lifted the headphone away from the Simpsons you could hear them talking on their walkie-talkie to the morgue yeah. um, they were talking with none of the subtlety of the nurses they were saying yeah but what do you mean you don't have space you know that kind of thing and you think oh good you know and you put the Simpsons back on again and and it was these little touches that sounds callous you know you bond slightly with all the other patients in the wards of course you're affected by a close neighbor's death. Were there a lot of deaths around you while you were there? It was a bit abstract, really. I wasn't seeing it. A hospital is organized in such a way that on the whole, death and dead people are kept out of your sight.
Was there a sense on the ward that this was just an extraordinary time? This is something that the doctors and nurses hadn't experienced before. There was a moment when I realised, subconsciously anyway, uh, that I was becoming less of a patient and more of an observer. When I started to be able to walk again, let's say about week four or five into this process, and I sort of patrolled the corridor and just watched the doctors at work. You know, I'm a journalist, right? So I sort of gathered as much gossip as I could. And, you know, it was... You never quite switch off. <laughs> it was quite interesting. And, and it was really hot. It was uh, un, unusually hot and unusually light in the ward, as if the days were already starting to get shorter. And the younger doctors would, you know, after... The, 15, 16 hours, they, they'd stick around in, in, the, in the corridor and they'd joke and, and things. And you could see that they were bonding in a kind of First World War officer-ish kind of way, junior officer-ish kind of way. And at the same time, the doctors were under this immense, the young ones especially, this immense strain of dealing with relatives of dying people and of how to handle these situations which they hadn't really handled before in this quantity. It's a bit of a nut house, really. And then there were the hallucinations. We were all hallucinating, I think. I mean, I certainly was hallucinating. They call it COVID delirium, which is a kind of like, like fever dreams, only much more intense. About one in three patients who spend more than five days in the ICU will experience some kind of psychotic reaction. These were very explicit stories almost, wrapped into a dreamlike state. So one is, uh, I'm in, in a bed in a bakery, surrounded by cheerful bakers. I could even locate the bakery. It was the other side of the river from Greenwich. And I could hear a sound, a kind of river sound. It was a kind of ding-dong or something like this, something that a boat might make. So I was given bread and, and you know, it was, it was very, very odd. There was a, a, an exorcism with one of the nurses and one of the helpers, real people, coming in and basically trying to exorcise one of the patients with some weird ritual. In these hallucinations, I'm always in my bed, so it's always related quite clearly to my present situation and trying to make sense of what had been happening to me. I guess because my brain was kind of taken over in some way by sedation and by the, the physicality of being put on a ventilator and pumped with these things. I think my brain was trying to digest what had happened. Because there's a moment when this treatment, although if you're lucky it ends up saving your life, is also an act of violence, this pushing of stuff into you. and. Your brain doesn't get a chance to catch up with it all. I think the hallucinations are a way of doing that, a way of trying to order different unpleasant events 
while you're experiencing them, while you're in hospital, I mean, was it difficult to distinguish between dream and, and reality? Yes, when I was awake, it was fine. So the, the staff nurse or junior doctor would come and say, did you have a good night? And I'd say, no, are you crazy? You know, there were all these people around dressed as monks, and then they tried to uh, kidnap the man in the next bed, and then the window flew open, and there was this strange coldness in the whole place and you know how could how do you think i could have slept and they said well you know wait 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 there's no window in this ward that can open yeah so that's the first thing part of their morning routine with me was was then to try and dismantle these these dreams and then we'd have this process which quite a lot of people who've been to hospital are familiar with which is do you remember what year it is and do you know who's ruling the country? All these kind of things to make sure that you weren't slipping away totally from reality. It happens with ICU. We see that delirium, disorientation and hallucinations happen in a very large proportion of ICU patients. The vast majority settle with explanations and time, but some people do effectively develop post-traumatic stress disorder after their stay on ICU. And the journey to accept and understand everything that's happened during that time can be a very long one, running into months or even years. I think a lot of people get much better, much faster once they're out of hospital. But it's a big, it's a big transition. I thought it would be easier, and and for me, it was even more weird because I'd gone in before lockdown. After the ravages of ICU recovery physical and mental, has been a slow and ongoing process. I was in hospital for five or six weeks and I grew a beard because that's what you do. There's no mirrors in, in the hospitals. Afterwards, when I came home and saw that I had this huge beard, I obviously wanted to shave it off because uh, I didn't want to look like a kind of gulag person. And then I realised underneath the beard there were these quite deep scar tissue and that the beard was actually disguising it which ran from the bottom of my uh, ear to un just underneath my mouth. So I wondered where the hell this had all come from. And it was because of the mask that was put on, the oxygen mask that had to be put on, on the ventilator, very tight because you didn't want to lose any of the oxygen for such a long period of time. And the result was a kind of it looks, well, I've, I've kept the beard because I'm a bit worried about it all. Um, as far as I can see, it looks like it, almost like a burn mark uh, on both sides of the face. And, and memory loss is still an issue with me. I, I still lose words and have really? to around it. Yeah. Has that been quite difficult? Has, has it been sort of be becoming aware that you're losing words? I, I talked to a new, neurologist uh, the other day and he said basically that this will come back it's just first you have to get your uh, attention span back which i think i am because i'm starting you know to read books and retain what i'm reading and so on again for the first time in a couple of months but basically he says the various parts of your brain will heal itself but you can't expect to get back 100%. You, you have to accept that, that there is, your memory will be 95% or whatever of what it was.
and that was supposed to be reassuring, but I, I'm, I'm not sure that it particularly was because I worry about that 5% of things that I don't, that, that I can't remember or I don't remember. Probably best not to focus on those. Well, yes. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And, that, and that's, that's the other thing, whether I really need to dig much deeper into what happened, for example, in the intensive care unit or whether I should just let it. Has it helped you trying to piece it together, trying to understand? Well, I thought it would. And, you know, I thought, why don't I write an extended piece about my 20 missing days and just go around and find out what happened? And then, uh, so I thought, yes, that's good. It'd be good therapy. But the truth is, it isn't, I don't think. Or at least it isn't. It doesn't work for me because the more I ask, the more questions I ask, either doctors are saying, you don't want to know. And, and part of me thinks, okay, maybe maybe I don't need to know. You just accept that there are periods of your life that you can wipe clean. I think we all have to learn patience. Yeah, we, patience with, the, with each other and patience in, in recovery. It's, it's just, I, I just have to learn, and I think this is probably what every recovering patient will, will tell you, I just have to learn to live slower, to live more slowly. And I don't think maybe that's such a bad thing. How do you think the experience has changed you? I mean, do you feel like a different person? Well, I don't know. But if if the major change is just that, that I don't rush, 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 then maybe that's not such a bad thing. I can, I can live with that. I think it's fair to say that we're all very tired at the moment. For those of us on the front line, we're mindful of the need to get back to normality and start providing healthcare to many patients whose healthcare has been on hold. Whilst most people have been able to stay at home, work from home, we've had to go in day after day watching patients die of a disease we don't understand and acknowledging that we put ourselves and perhaps even more importantly our families at risk as well. And that's been hard I think that's going to take some time for healthcare workers to be able to process and their families. Has it has it changed your view of death? Yes. Uh, well, no. Um, and yes, uh, I'm not sure. Uh, <laughs> I was familiar with death. Yes, my my wife had died some 15 years ago, and I was. I'm sorry. I was no, no. It's <laughs> it's a long time ago now, and I stayed in the hospital with her for the last week or so. But that was a very slow process. It was cancer and it was very slow. And so I thought I was pretty, you know, pretty up to speed on death. But actually, um, I'm not. It is just just like you have these special passages in hospitals to kind of take bodies out so that the living and the people fighting for their lives don't see it. So I've kind of slightly lived my life. So that, that death somehow isn't properly integrated into my conscious experience. It's something that you push into a siding and then get on with other things. And I think maybe that's wrong. I think I've got to, uh, first of all, recognize my own mortality, uh, but also whether life should be lived in, in a more uh, contemplative way. Life is not about acceleration, but it's about 
finding the ligaments that connect your life together. And traditionally, this is something that's supposed to be done at the end of your life. But I think it should be part of a continuing process of, I think, even when you're in your 20s or 30s, you should be thinking in those terms about school teachers who are maybe who have maybe died and, and who gave you something and made you who you are. I think that's quite important. And that's what I'm going to try and do, I think, to some degree. listening to Stories of Our Times with me, Manveen Rana, and my guests, diplomatic editor and columnist at The Times, Roger Boys, and intensive care consultant, Dr. Sonia Hudson. You can read more of Roger's work at thetimes.co.uk or in print. The producers were Asia Fuchs, Will Rowe, and Edward Drummond. The executive producer is Leo Hornack, and the deputy executive producer is Poppy Damon. Sound design was by Nicola Rolfast. Music by Breakmaster Cylinder. If you liked what you heard, please leave us a review. You can subscribe for free. We're available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Acast and more. Also, in these uncertain times, you can access analysis, opinion and advice from the experts every day with a digital subscription to The Times and The Sunday Times. Visit thetimes.co.uk slash subscribe to find out more. See you tomorrow.